Welcome to the Immuno-Oncology, a focus on prostate cancer conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Please note this conference is being recorded. I will now turn the call over to Kelsey Holden. Kelsey, you may begin. Welcome to AUA's Advancements in Genitourinary Cancer Immunotherapy Treatment Series, webinar number four, Immuno-Oncology, a focus on prostate cancer. This is the fourth webinar in a four-part series. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so that we are able to continuously improve our program. Thank you to course director, Dr. Kosas Lawless, and faculty, Dr. Edward Trebulsi and Dr. Terrence Friedlander for joining us today. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates this internet live activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Evaluations are very important to us. Course evaluations and CME credit will be administered electronically on AUA University immediately following the webinar. Please stay tuned for a keyword that will be provided at the end of the webinar. You will need to use this keyword to access the course evaluation, CME credit claim, and certificate. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. The AUA disclosure policy, education council disclosures, and faculty disclosures can be found on AUA University. The AUA would like to thank the following companies for providing independent educational grants in support of this webinar. AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Merck & Co, Inc. Coding advice given during presentations are the opinion of the presenters and may not have been vetted through the AUA for accuracy. Please verify accuracy prior to reporting on medical claims. Finally, we hope that you will actively participate tonight. Please interact with us and please feel free to ask questions of the faculty at any point using the chat box on your screen. I will now turn the webinar over to course director, Dr. Kostas Lala. Great, thank you, Kelsey. Uh, as Kelsey mentioned, this is the last of our series of three podcasts and four webinars, and we certainly have saved the best for last. The learning objectives are stated. At the conclusion of this activity, participants will be able to restate the role of the immune system in cancer prevention and elimination, discuss the effects of the immune system checkpoint inhibitors on the immunosuppressive activity of tumor cells, and review clinical investigations into the efficacy of immune system checkpoint inhibitors and the treatment of GU cancers. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce our first speaker, Dr. Edward Trebolsi. He is a professor and vice chair in the Department of Urology at the Sidney Kinnell Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. He, re he received his Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry, cum laude, uh, graduating cum laude with distinction in research from the University of Rochester and completed his medical degree magna cum laude at the State University of New York at Buffalo. He completed a surgery internship, residency, and urology residency at Jefferson, and he also completed a fellowship in urologic oncology and minimally invasive urologic oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He is a member of the AOA Honor Society. Dr. Chabolsi is director of the Division of Urologic Oncology in the Department of Urology at Jefferson and the co-director of the Jefferson Prostate Diagnostic Center at Thomas Jefferson University. He's the director of clinical trials in the Department of Urology and the co-director of the GU Oncology Multidisciplinary Cancer Center at the Kimmel Cancer Center of, of Thomas Jefferson University. He serves as the cancer liaison to the ACS Commission on Cancer for TJU Hospital, and regionally he is the immediate past president of the Mid-Atlantic section of the AUA. He has published numerous manuscripts and book chapters in the field of urologic oncology and prostate cancer imaging, and his clinical interests include all areas of urologic oncology and minimally invasive surgery, including prostate, bladder, kidney, testis, and penile cancers. His research interests include contrast-enhanced transrectal ultrasonography and PET imaging of prostate and bladder cancer. Ed is a colleague and a very dear friend of mine, and when I was asked to organize this webinar, 
I really could not think of any urologist more qualified to speak on this topic. We're so pleased to have him tonight. Uh, Ed, go ahead and take it away. Thanks, Costa. Thank you so much for that gracious introduction. Uh, thanks, everyone, for getting on tonight. Uh, just by way of disclosure, um, you can see here, Sean, I do have some disclosures um, and also an acknowledgement that some of the material for this presentation was adapted from uh, the AUA uh, CRPC courses that have been running. Uh, Adam Kaibel was kind enough to share. So in terms of uh, our uh, talk tonight, we'll talk about the landscape of advanced prostate cancer currently, and we'll talk about some of the disease states of advanced prostate cancer and guideline recommendations, and then we'll really dive into the clinical trial data, and then briefly talk a little bit about emerging treatments. So here's an, a nice uh, depiction of the evolution of advanced prostate cancer. For years, we didn't have anything beyond uh, androgen deprivation therapy. That changed in 2004 with the approval of uh, docetaxel in the metastatic setting. And then, as you can see, over the last uh, 14 years, there's been multiple drugs approved in multiple different disease states and indications. It's really been an explosion of uh, options for our patients with advanced prostate cancer. When we talk about disease states, we divide patients into uh, metastatic, non-metastatic, castrate-sensitive, castrate-resistant. Um, the uh, metastatic castrate-sensitive uh, group, um, currently, if you look at the NCCN guideline, include three different options for these patients. So these patients are patients with um, newly diagnosed prostate cancer with uh, metastatic disease at presentation. The standard of care would be androgen deprivation therapy. And then based on pivotal trials out of the U.S. and the U.K., uh, this charted trial, the stampede trial, the latitude trial, would also include options of androgen deprivation therapy with docetaxel for six cycles or androgen deprivation with abiraterone. The charted trial was uh, the trial from the U.S. led by ECOG looking at newly diagnosed metastatic men that were hormone sensitive. And this randomized men, uh, 790 men, to androgen deprivation therapy plus or minus doxetaxel. Uh, they were stratified by disease burden, uh, more or less than four bone mets or the presence of visceral met metastasis. They also stratified by age less than or greater than 70. They looked at good performance status, 0, 1, or 2, versus ECOG 2, poor performance status, and how, uh, how long they had had prior androgen deprivation therapy before enrolling. And here you can see on the Kaplan-Meier curve that the addition of uh, docetaxel to androgen deprivation therapy, when you looked at overall survival, there was a significant uh, improvement from 44 to 56 months, a very significant um, improvement in overall survival with a hazard ratio of 0.61. The STAMPEDE trial was a similar trial design. Uh, STAMPEDE is run out of the UK, and this is a batch trial, so they have multiple different arms as different treatments become available that they add on that are compared to the backbone control group, which is androgen deprivation therapy. So the STAMPEDE trial, when they looked at the addition of androgen deprivation therapy with docetaxel, uh, that was a total of 592 men. Uh, those were a mix of locally advanced, non-metastatic, as well as metastatic uh, men. Uh, and, but the majority of those men on the docetaxel arm were metastatic. And this showed a very similar improvement in overall survival of 15 months with a hazard ratio of 0.76. The latitude trial, this looked at, at a, abiraterone with androgen deprivation therapy. This was also a very large trial, uh, over 1,100 men. In order to be uh, available for the trial, eligible for the trial, they had to have metastatic hormone-sensitive disease with two of three pre-specified high-risk features, including a high Gleason score, at least three or more bone metastasis, or the presence of visceral metastasis. This also showed a significant improvement in progression-free survival of almost 20 months. And in this trial, the median overall survival was not reached because the patients on abiraterone did so well. And here you can see 
the progression-free survival on the right, the radiographic progression-free survival, has a ratio of 0.47, uh, indicating a 53% improvement in uh, delaying uh, radiographic progression. On the left is the overall survival with a hazard ratio of 0.62, indicating a 38% increase in overall survival. From these two trials now, abiraterone or um, docetaxel are appropriate in the initial management of metastatic castrate-sensitive prostate cancer. The STAMPEDE trial, uh, like I said earlier, was a, uh, is a uh, BATS trial. They also had an ad abiraterone arm with androgen deprivation therapy. Also, again, a mix of metastatic, non-metastatic, and locally advanced patients, but the majority were metastatic. Similar type risk stratification needed two of either Gleason 8 or higher, clinical T3 or higher, or a PSA greater than 40. This looked at two years of ADT uh, with abiraterone and allowed external beam radiotherapy for the non-metastatic patients. It was optional for the locally advanced patients and not offered in the metastatic uh, population. This also showed a strong survival advantage in the men that got abiraterone compared to ADT. So for the hormone-naive metastatic population, ADT is the standard of care at a minimum. And uh, the addition of docetaxel for six cycles or abiraterone with prednisone can be offered in subgroup analyses, it appears that the biggest benefit is in the high-volume, higher-risk disease, not as clear about the benefit for oligometastatic or low-metastatic burden. And so, therefore, we should individualize our approach and decide if any additional agent in addition to ADT is necessary. When we look at the non-metastatic CRPC space, so these are men that are on androgen deprivation therapy, have a, uh, undetect, uh, a castrate level of uh, testosterone, and have negative conventional imaging with rising PSA, uh, the recent update of the NCCM guidelines would indicate either close careful observation, especially for those men with a very slow doubling time, uh, or the addition of enzalutamide or apalutamide to androgen deprivation therapy. This was then also updated in the AUA guidelines in May of 2018, where they indicated that apalutamide or enzalutamide plus ADT in the non-metastatic CRPC patient population would have an evidence level grade A. This is based on results of the SPARTAN and the PROSPER trials. SPARTAN was the trial looking at differences in metastasis-free survival in men that had the addition of apalutamide to androgen deprivation therapy. PROSPER, similar trial design, also looking at metastasis-free survival, the addition of enzalutamide to androgen deprivation therapy. This is the first time that this endpoint, metastasis-free survival, was used and approved by FDA in a registration trial as a, an appropriate endpoint. Looking at the SPARTAN trial real quickly, and again, a phase three placebo-controlled randomized trial of non-metastatic CRPC patients, uh, randomized two to one to either apalutamide, 240 milligrams daily with ADT versus placebo with ADT, with the primary endpoint of metastasis-free survival. This showed a significant delay in the development of radiographic evident metastasis from 16 months to 40 months, almost two years uh, delay, very significant improvement in metastasis-free survival. When they looked at overall survival, that has not yet been reached, um, but it does seem to separate, and we have to see with more uh, data collection and more events if an overall survival benefit will be seen. When we look at PROSPER, this was a similar trial design, very large trial, 1,400 men, phase three randomized placebo-controlled trial of enzalutamide, 160 milligrams daily, plus androgen deprivation therapy versus placebo with androgen deprivation therapy. This also had a metastasis-free survival primary endpoint. And if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, also a dramatic improvement in the development of metastatic disease with the metastasis-free survival increasing from 14 months to 36 months, also almost two years of delay in development of radiographic evidence of metastasis. 
So, Ed, are, are, we're still waiting for the uh, survival uh, curve? We are. These, these data sets have not matured yet. If you can see, if I go back, the overall survival has not reached the, uh, the 50 percent uh, event rate. Uh, so we're waiting to see if this will bear out in an overall survival benefit. But when you look at appropriate surrogate endpoints, there is a lot of uh, agreement that a metastasis-free survival endpoint is an appropriate surrogate for overall survival. And we would expect, although it remains to be seen, we'd expect that we would see this uh, improvement in overall survival as well. Moving forward with metastatic CRPC, as I mentioned, uh, docetaxel was approved in 2004. This was the first cytotoxic chemotherapy that showed an overall survival benefit. The TAX-327 trial looked at docetaxel 75 milligrams per meter squared with prednisone every three weeks. Uh, this uh, was confirmed with a similar SWOG-9916 trial. After this became uh, the next uh, agents that became available were androgen receptor targeted therapies. This would include abiraterone and prednisone, which is an androgen biosynthesis inhibitor, and enzalutamide, which is a second generation anti-androgen. These two agents were approved in the post-chemo space first, each of them, and then moved up sooner and approved in the pre-chemo space. So if you look at the timeline, uh, different agents that have been approved over the last 14 years that have shown improvements in overall survival. 2004, the first one was docetaxel. 2010 was T. This is for the asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic metastatic CRPC patients. Cabezataxel was approved for those patients failing docetaxel. Then, as I mentioned, abiraterone and enzalutamide were both approved relatively quickly near each other in the post-docetaxel space, and then again in the pre-docetaxel space. In 2013, radium-223 was approved in the, for metastatic CRPC in patients that did not have visceral metastasis, only bony disease. And then most recently, a blanket approval for pembrolizumab, which I will not get into, for any solid tumor that has uh, DNA damage repair mutations or MSI mutations. And so prostate would potentially fall under that as well. Getting into the uh, uh, trials a little bit deeper, abiraterone in the post-chemo, this was the Cougar 301 trial. Um, this was a large trial, almost 1,200 patients, two-to-one randomization of abiraterone and prednisone versus placebo showing a, a significant improvement in overall survival from 10.9 months to 14.8 months. The Cougar 302 was the follow-up study in the pre-chemo uh, population. This was metastatic CRPC patients failing at androgen deprivation therapy that had not been exposed to docetaxel. Another large trial, 10,088 patients, abiraterone, 1,000 milligrams daily with prednisone versus placebo. If you may notice, these trials, the earlier trials, didn't all have placebos because there wasn't approved comparators or other agents. These trials nowadays would not necessarily be considered ethical because there are a lot of different agents for comparison, but they passed muster back, you know, 12 years ago when they were designed because there were no uh, placebo, there was nothing other than a placebo or best supportive care uh, available. The, the Cougar 302 showed significant improvement in overall survival as well as radiographic progression-free survival. Enzalutamide, uh, similar schema, the AFFIRM trial, 1,200 patients, two-to-one randomization. These patients in the post-chemo setting were failing ADT and prior docetaxel. This randomized ADT plus or minus enzalutamide, 160 milligrams daily. Uh, this also was powered for an overall survival benefit and showed uh, improvement in overall survival. The secondary endpoints also showed significant improvement, things that we would expect, such as PSA response, radiographic progression, time to first skeletal related event. The PREVAIL trial was the pre-chemo enzalutamide trial for metastatic CRPC, even larger trial, 1,700 months uh, patients, excuse me, th this was patients failing ADT 
who had not received prior docetaxel. Similar dosing schedule, enzalutamide 160 milligrams versus placebo and continuing the androgen deprivation therapy. Uh, overall survival endpoint, which was met with a hazard ratio of 0.71, indicating a 29% improvement in overall survival. Also significant improvement in secondary endpoint, the risk of progression, 81% uh, improvement. Radium-223, I touched on this briefly. This is an intravenous radiation treatment. It's a radioisotope that's an alpha emitter. Uh, it targets bony metastasis with high energy uh, with a short range. So theoretically, that should spare some of the bone marrow toxicity. This is uh, for patients with only with bone uh, disease. If they have visceral disease, it is not approved. This is a once-a-month infusion for six months. The ALSIMCA trial was the phase three trial that led to the approval of radium-223 in the metastatic CRPC patients. This was either pre or post docetaxel chemo. 900, over 900 patients randomized two to one to RAD-223 monthly for six months versus placebo. This also showed a significant improvement in overall survival and a secondary endpoint of time to skeletal-related event also significantly improved. And also, pain scores were significantly improved as well. So if you look at NCCN guidelines, it's kind of complicated. But for the metastatic CRPC patients, if you look at what agents are available, and we've talked about most of them today, we have abiraterone. Let's see if I can get this pointer to work. Not working so well here. We have abiraterone docetaxel, enzalutamide, radium for symptomatic bone meth. And also, we need to keep in mind that these patients should be considered for clinical trials if, if available at your local institution. Now, the one difference here is if the patients have visceral meth, then uh, if they don't have visceral meth, this is where radium is approved. Uh, if they have visceral meth, then it is not indicated for radium-223. And this is shown here. Visceral meth, these patients, you might want to also consider a biopsy because those patients can have dedifferentiated neuroendocrine type tumors that might uh, uh, require brain imaging and more traditional cytotoxic chemotherapeutic regimens. In terms of new directions, there's a lot of interest in combination therapy, combining chemo with androgen receptor-targeted therapy, combining an androgen biosynthesis inhibitor with a second-generation antiandrogen. But we need to be cautious because a recent report of the ERA-223 trial, which was a combination of RAD-223 with abiraterone, was actually stopped early because of deleterious effects in the patients receiving the combination. Uh, they had increased fractures and actually an increased death rate. Other new areas of investigation is trying to figure out the best sequence. There's no real good guidance on which agents to use when. Should you start with one or the other? Uh, that may be biomarker-driven. That may be um, comorbidity-driven. It may even be as silly or as unfortunate as insurance coverage-driven. Newer agents on the horizon are the PARP inhibitors. Uh, there are new antiandrogens that uh, can target some of the different splice variants of the androgen receptor that we see. There are agents that target the N-terminal domain of the androgen receptor, which is the end of the molecule opposite the ligand-binding domain and should not be affected by uh, the ligand-binding domain. And there's also radioisotope therapy, such as lutetium-177 attached to PSMA, and lots of other new directions on the horizon. So in conclusion, uh, the guidelines uh, are uh, an important, essential um, approach to uh, handling these patients. Uh, we have lots of different options, but there are some subtleties on which ones are approved and, uh, and appropriate in different uh, cohorts. The decision-making should be individualized, uh, looking at symptoms, looking at performance status, looking at the burden of disease and the pace of disease and the comorbidities. Certainly, it's a very rapidly evolving field, uh, and understanding the available agents and when to use them gives the optimal benefit. Thanks a lot.
Great, thank you, Ed. Uh, that was awesome. It was a, uh, as, as you may have uh, surmised, uh, Dr. Chabolsi gave us a nice overview of uh, really advanced prostate cancer treatments with regard to hormonal manipulation. Um, now we're going to shift our focus a little bit to uh, the immune, uh, the immuno-oncology options, and we've asked uh, Dr. Terry Friedlander from UCSF uh, to speak on this. Uh, Dr. Friedlander is a clinical and translational oncologist who specializes in cancers of the GU tract, specifically bladder and prostate cancer. His research is focused on understanding the basic biology of these malignancies and in developing novel therapeutic ways to treat disease. As a clinical academic oncologist, he serves as principal investigator or co-investigator on a number of clinical trials in advanced urologic malignancies. He collaborates with a number of intramural and extramural investigators from the bench to the bedside with research projects focused on the prognostic and predictive value of circulating tumor cells, as well as studies of immunotherapy. Dr. Friedlander hopes this work will help us to be able to predict which are likely to respond to treatments and allow us to tailor our clinical strategy to avoid giving toxic and ineffective therapies and to select patients most likely to benefit. As far as his education goes, uh, he went to undergrad at Brown University, graduating in 99. He got his medical degree from NYU. He finished his urology residency at UCSF then went to the Netherlands to Utrecht University for a medical ethics uh, master's degree. Finally, uh, went back to UCSF for his fellowship in oncology and in urologic oncology in 2011. Terry is a known thought leader in the immunologic treatment of advanced prostate cancer. And again, uh, you guys are in for a treat. Uh, we're so pleased that he can join us today. Uh, Terry, go ahead and take it away. Great. Thanks so much, Costas, uh, for that introduction. It, it really is an exciting time in oncology now with a number of um, immune therapies being approved across the board. Um, in prostate cancer, actually the very first immune therapy to be approved for a solid tumor um, came in prostate cancer um, about, about eight years ago now with Cipulosal uh, T, and we'll talk about that because um, there, there are a number of new drugs or new agents that are, that are on the horizon. Um, these are my disclosures. Um, again, we're going to talk about the role of the immune system in cancer prevention and elimination. We're going to discuss the effects of immune um, checkpoint inhibitors um, in modulating the immunosuppressive activity of tumor cells, and we're going to go over some of the clinical studies, look at the efficacy and some of the side effects um, of uh, checkpoint blockade in, in the treatment of GU cancers. Um, so I want to break this up into three um, three. Uh, parts. The first part is just thinking some basic about some basic principles of immune therapy. Then thinking about some of the approved therapies, uh, including tumor vaccines like Cipulosal T and checkpoint inhibitors, which are being uh, tested now. And then we're going to talk about combinations and uh, future direction. Um, so this is a, a pretty um, important concept of um, immunosurveillance. And the idea is, uh, this is now proposed a, a, a long time ago, about 15 years ago. And the idea is that the immune system uh, keeps uh, cancers in check, um, and it's only over time as cancers accumulate mutations or genetic instability that they evolve mechanisms to evade the immune system. So on this graph you see on the left, you have CD4 and CD8 um, T cells and natural killer cells that are able to sort of control these little red cancer cells as they form, and they secrete uh, molecules that sort of kill them. That's the elimination phase. Um, over time, the cancer cells evolve these mechanisms to sort of come into equilibrium with the cancer, uh, sorry, with the immune system, whereby the, the cancer cells can sort of survive, and eventually they uh, um, are able to proliferate and grow, and that's the escape, which you see over on the right. And so really what we're trying to do in um, immuno-oncology is take patients who are here in the escape mode and bring them back, uh, you know, back to equilibrium or even to eliminate, to eliminate these tumors. Um, and this is a, a concept, this is a, sort of an idea of the cancer immuno, immunity cycle. And I know it's a busy slide, but I do want to walk through it for a second because it really directs um, how and why we're using these different agents. Um, and it's broken up into three parts. There's the tumor, which is over here on the uh, bottom right, which you can see here. There's the lymph node, and then there's the blood vessels. 
And so um, the, the immune system gets first alerted to um, uh, cancer when cancer antigens are released. And these go into the um, local microenvironment or eventually taken up in the lymph nodes um, where the antigens are presented to dendritic cells or antigen-presenting cells. So any therapy that can increase the release of antigens, like chemotherapy or radiation therapy, certain targeted therapies, can enhance the number of antigens that are released. Um, the, um, in the lymph node, we need to prime these dendritic cells. We need to get them to take up antigen, turn on, and then, and then go on to um, stimulate T cells. Um, and so there are a number of agents that can do this. Vaccines can help prime dendritic cells, interferon, GMCSF, and other, other agents that you can see listed here. Um, the dendritic cells talk to the T cells here, which are represented in, um, in pink and purple. Um, and there's an interaction between these two cells that um, is, is critical for turning on the right T cells to get them to go into the microenvironment. And so anti-CTLA-4 is probably the most commonly used agent. This is um, ipilimumab is, is an example of that. Um, there are a number of others that are in testing, including IL-2 and IL-12, um, which may help increase the priming of these T cells. The T cells then have to traffic into the tumors and penetrate into the tumor microenvironment. Um, and we can um, enhance that perhaps by using anti-VEGF therapies. There are a number of studies looking at bevacizumab, ramacirumab, and others to see if the, this can help sort of stabilize blood vessels and allow the T cells to penetrate in the microenvironment. And then within the microenvironment, there are a number of strategies to get the T cells to actually come into contact with the T cells and then to get them to kill the cancer cells. And these are, for example, are chimeric antigen receptor or CAR T cells. These are made a lot of ways in leukemia, where the T cells are genetically modified to fight the cancer. Um, but perhaps the best known are the anti-PD-1 and PDL one agents, um, which have been now approved uh, for, for a number of cancers um, that really facilitate the sort of turning on of the uh, T cell against the uh, cancer by essentially turning off a lot of the checkpoints. And that's why we call this checkpoint blockade. Um, so it's good to keep this in mind as you see not only in prostate cancer but across oncology as you see new agents coming into the fore because it may be a, uh, certain cancers will need more than one agent to really stimulate this immunity cycle and really get good, good cell kill. Um, so how do we do this in prostate cancer? Well, so I said I talk about vaccines and checkpoint inhibition. So um, probably the best known vaccine is Cipulosal T um, that goes by a trade named Provenge. Um, there's another one called PROSVAC, which was just in a phase three study um, that was actually negative. And so you may not hear much more about PROSVAC, but it's worth talking about this um, because this got actually very far along and there were some patients who seemed to have very good responses. Um, when we move on to talk about the checkpoint inhibitors, we'll talk a lot about ipilimumab as well as the PD-1 and PDL one inhibitors. So Cipulosal T um, is what's called an autologous vaccine, meaning that cells are taken from a patient, their own immune cells, and brought to a lab so the patient has to undergo a leukapheresis, which is a four-hour procedure where a patient is essentially hooked up to an apheresis machine. It looks like a dialysis machine. And their blood is run through this machine, um, spun, and the white cells are taken off, and the, the rest of the blood is given back to the patient. Um, the white cells are then taken and sent to the uh, lab where they're pulsed with an antigen. Um, and the antigen is prostatic acid phosphatase. That's a uh, uh, um, protein that's commonly found inside prostate cancer. Um, it's actually fused to GMCSF, which is an immunostimulant. And essentially, this is given to those cells. The antigen-presenting cells take up that antigen, presumably become activated in some way. And then the cells are given back about two days later or three days later to the patient. And the idea is that these antigen-presenting cells are then able to take an inactive T cell and activate it or turn it on. But the idea here is that the T cells then drive into the tumor microenvironment and kill uh, cancer cells. At least this is how it's thought to work. It's hard to prove that this is how it works in any individual patient. Um, if you look in uh, clinical trials, there were actually two uh, phase three studies. And I'm showing you the uh, largest of the two. I'm sorry this doesn't project very well. But um, the efficacy was seen in both phase three clinical trials where there was a clear survival advantage, a median of about four months benefit. That's here in blue is the cipulosal T arm, and here in red is a placebo arm where patients had their cells leukopheresed, sent to a lab, and then just given back without any manipulation. 
what was interesting is the overall survival benefit was seen, and it was seen actually quite early. The progression-free survival benefit actually just missed being statistically significant, um, where the medians basically overlap. But it seems like there is a percent of patients who seem to benefit from this. So it may be that this overall survival benefit is being driven by some patients benefiting, you know, with, to a significant degree from this treatment and others really not deriving any benefit. Um, one thing that CPLCT doesn't do is it doesn't uh, generally cause PSA declines. And so I think there's been a lot of skepticism about how this drug works because the, the sort of the rise of the PSA may slow, but you don't generally see reversal of the PSA like you might with hormone therapy or chemotherapy. Um, regardless of how you feel about this, this is an approved therapy for men with minimally symptomatic metastatic CRPC. Um, and there is actually evidence that um, giving cipulosal T to men with lower PSAs, may, they may be the ones deriving more benefit. And so this was a uh, poster, I believe this has been published now, um, looking at men based on their PSA and when they got um, uh, cipulosal T. And what, what the investigators in this study saw were that in the lowest quartile, so men whose PSAs were less than um, 22 here, um, seemed to get about a 13-month um, uh, survival benefit if they got cipulosal T. While on the flip side, men whose PSAs were very high at the time that they received cipulosal T had, uh, you know, a very modest difference in survival. And so in my practice, I offer cipulosal T, but I generally offer it early in the MCRPC process. I don't wait for patients to be very sick or have very symptomatic disease, because those men really don't seem to derive as much benefit. And truthfully, in the study, they had to have asymptomatic MCRPC. Um, so that's sort of the appropriate patient to offer cipulosal T2. The other thing that you should know is that it's a six-week treatment regimen, and after six weeks, generally the PSA will continue to rise. Um, so you have to be sort of prepared that, um, that the patient is going to you know, want to do something else. You know, there, there's still just going to be this concern that the PSA is rising despite getting this. I generally describe it to patients like putting money in your retirement account, where if you check it the next day, you don't really see much benefit, but if you wait, you know, a year, two years, five years, you actually accrue benefit over time. And I think that helps patients to think about it a little, a little, you know, a little more rationally. So you're following these patients with imaging then, uh, Terry, or? Yeah, so in general, we'll, we'll um, sort of continue their treatment as though they were about to start hormone therapy, you know, abiraterone or enzalutamide. Or, or whatever the next line of therapy is. Um, because it's only six weeks, I usually have imaged them prior to getting cipulosal T just to make sure they don't have visceral disease or, or something else that would make me, you know, concerned about giving them, um, giving them this treatment. Um, but, but you really have to be ready to move on after you give it because the patient's going to want to know what, what's next. And I think patients are very dismayed if they get this and they're not prepared for the fact that their PSA may continue to rise. Um, so again, these patients should be asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. There were patients who had received chemotherapy in the study, so technically can be given later, but I just told you that I, I generally don't do that. They really shouldn't have visceral metastases, and they should have kind of slowly progressing disease. If you really think this patient is going to need chemotherapy very soon, it doesn't really make sense to give them this treatment. Um, the big challenges that I mentioned is that clinical responses are rare. PSA declines really don't happen frequently, and radiographic responses are rare. Um, there's really no marker, biomarker of response, so you really have to um, um, sort of take it a little bit on faith that, that it's working, and especially the patient needs to be sort of sort of buy into that idea. Um, it's logistically challenging, you know, three it's three apheresis over six weeks. You do this process three times, um, and each time the patient has to be sort of strapped to the chair with an IV in each arm, um, and that can be hard, especially for men who may have urinary issues where they have to, you know, um, sitting down in a chair for four hours at a shot may be hard. Um, it is expensive. It's covered in, in the U.S. It's covered by Medicare, um, but it's, it's, you know, sticker price is around $100,000 for all three doses. Um, if you look at the cost relative to the amount of benefit, it's actually not that different than most of our other therapies where six or ten cycles of chemotherapy runs about this amount of money um, for about the same amount of benefit. Um, the, uh, the last question is sort of how to sequence this with other therapies. Fortunately, it's a short, um, short time to give it. So as long as the patient has six weeks that they can, um, that they can um, you know, wait, they should be able to receive this and then, and then be ready to move on. So there's a question um, from the audience regarding the Cipulosal T. Um, did, did 
did they study some immunological either biomarker or prognostic factor? Yeah, so, so, you know, folks have looked at dendritic cell markers because the thought is this is really stimulating dendritic cells. CD, I think it's CD53. I forget exactly if that's the right marker. Um, it, they were able to, to show that if there was some upregulation of that, that there was, you know, a correlation with better responses, but it really was not a slam dunk easy biomarker to, to do. And that's very much looking after, the, after it's given as opposed to um, finding a, a circulating biomarker before the treatment's given that can really tell you who to treat, um, you know, and who, who to avoid. You know, if you look back to those curves, I think the patients who have rapid progressive disease should not get this treatment, um, whereas patients with slower, um, you know, asymptomatic, kind of slowly rising PSA, despite, um, hormone, you know, uh, castrate-level testosterone, those are the kind of the right patients for this. But they really have to be sort of vested in the process because it's not as simple as just putting an IV in their arm and giving them a, a treatment off the shelf. Um, moving on, Prospect was an interesting compound. This is a um, essentially a, a recombinant virus. So essentially, um, vaccinian fallpox viruses were made somewhat less um, virulent, and this plasmid or this DNA um, ring was essentially added that contained PSA and stimulatory molecules, which are listed here at the top. And these were um, essentially fused to create this um, this sort of viral particle that uh, expresses PSA. And the idea was that if the virus expresses PSA, the, um, that'll essentially turn on the immune system, will prime a response against PSA, and then the immune system will go hunting for cells that express PSA. Um, so a very interesting idea of using uh, a virus to sort of stimulate the immune system, because we know these can be very immunostimulatory. Um, in a phase two study, this is from 2010, um, there was a clear difference in, um, in survival, and this was pretty impressive. It was uh, uh, overall, you know, about um, just shy of 10-month difference. And so um, folks were pretty excited about this, and this really drove the uh, development of a phase three trial. Um, this was the headline from June of this year when the study finally wrote, uh, sort of read out, and that was that there was no benefit from giving this treatment into men with MCRPC. And this is the data. If you, you know, if you can see a difference between these curves, you know, you must have very good vision because there really is no difference here. Um, if you look at the hazard ratio, it was 1.00. It's almost identical um, between whether patients got a placebo um, or Prostvac. And there was an arm here where they got Prostvac plus GMCSF. And so this is very disappointing because I think there were a lot of folks who were hoping this would be an easier way to give immune therapy and prostate cancer. Um, easier, at least, than, than cipulosal T. Um, so why did it fail? It's not so clear, and I think we need to, um, there's going to be more studies looking at this, especially immunologic correlatives. Um, one thought is that, um, and these are slides uh, that uh, uh, shared with, by Doug McNeil from ASCO, that there may be better treatments in 2018 in, in the control arm that we didn't have in 2010. So a lot of men who did not receive PROSVAC um, may have just gotten abiraterone, enzalutamide, chemotherapy. You know, um, you just heard a great talk by um, Dr. Trebulsi about all the options that are available to, to men now. Um, so it may have just been a, um, uh, an effect of the, the, the control arm getting good treatment, and that's why these numbers really overlap. Um, the, the other piece, and this was, um, um, you know, uh, asked by one of the listeners is, you know, was there a biomarker that we could use to select these patients? And, you know, there wasn't, you know, there was no prospectively defined biomarker um, in the PROSVAC uh, earlier study, so they didn't use one in the phase three. I think we'll see as we do this analysis of the uh, study, you know, given that this was um, hundreds of men who participated, whether there's going to be a biomarker, whether they can pick out patients who were more likely to respond. But big picture is that PROSVAC is really not going to be in our armamentarium. There are a number of studies incorporating it earlier on in combination with some of the newer agents like, like PD-1 checkpoint inhibitors or CTLA-4 or others to see if there's a way to stimulate the immune system. Uh, but that remains to be seen. Um, I should say for both these studies, these were in men with minimally symptomatic disease. And minimally symptomatic, we usually define as not requiring narcotics. Um, so if a patient's taking an NSAID or you know, uh, acetaminophen, that's, that's considered okay, but for many of these um, studies, if the patients are on narcotics, 
um, then they're, they're usually excluded. Um, so I'm going to move on and talk about um, checkpoint inhibitors, which I think are a little fresher and a little more exciting. Um, so the CTLA-4 inhibitors, ipilimumab, is the uh, only one that's currently approved. There are others that are in development. Um, IPI is approved in both melanoma and in kidney cancer. Um, it's not approved yet in um, prostate cancer, and I'll show you some of that data. Um, as a monotherapy, it probably will never be approved in prostate cancer, but there are interesting studies looking at it in combination. And then the checkpoint inhibitors, so there's a number, pembrolizumab, nivolumab, um, durvalumab, avelumab, uh, uh, and um, atezolizumab are the five that are approved across oncology. And these are approved in urothelial cancer, in kidney cancer, in non-small cell lung cancer, melanoma. Recently, were approved in triple negative breast cancer as the first immunotherapy for breast cancer, um, head and neck cancers, lymphomas. So they're really, you know, widespread across oncology. And I think it's really important to emphasize that these are treatments that aren't, aren't necessarily anti-cancer therapies. They're, they're in, in a traditional sense where, you know, we're directly poisoning a cancer cell. These are really immune stimulants and sort of makes sense that they might work across a number of different cancers um, where, um, you know, the cancers have evolved similar mechanisms to sort of essentially push the immune system away. These are allowing some, some um, patients' immune systems to sort of push back. Um, and so we'll first talk about CTLA-4. Um, in fact, this is, before we get there, this is a schematic of how CTLA-4 works and how PD-1 works. Um, and I know this is busy, so if you, if you just focus on the left of the screen, you have a dendritic cell, which is an antigen-presenting cell, sort of a scavenger for the body looking for danger signals, and a T cell, which is essentially a foot soldier for the immune system that's going to go out and attack. And when the dendritic cell finds uh, uh, antigens that are foreign, it interacts with the T cell to sort of stimulate the T cell to get it to, to go attack. And the way it does this is it shows the T cell uh, what the antigen is that's presented here in the context of uh, what's called the major histocompatibility complex. And then there are, two, there are sort of two signals that happen. There's a, a sort of activation signal, which is a B7 CD28 signal, and there's an inhibitory signal. And this allows the immune system to sort of fine-tune responses. So if the uh, antigen is a self-antigen, it may um, want to tell the T cells to turn off. And so the uh, uh, engagement of CTLA-4 with B7 will turn off T cells. And the idea of giving a drug here, and this is really what ipilimumab is, what a CTLA-4 inhibitor is, is that if you block this inhibitory signal, you've essentially cut the brakes on the T cell, and you've allowed the T cell to sort of become activated. And if this is a cancer antigen here, then the T cell will go out and find that cancer antigen and try and attack it, which is great. If it's a self-antigen, that's not so great, because if it's, a, if it's a, a, an antigen that isn't present in the, in the lining of the gut, this may result in significant colitis, or in the pituitary gland, it might result in pituitary failure. So there's sort of a, a double-edged sword here, um, but this has um, been shown to be, you know, effective across a number of cancers. I should also say that the Nobel Prize that was just given last uh, month in October was given to um, James Allison, who uh, uh, basically discovered this antibody or, or uh, you know, put it in, in mice for the first time and subsequently into, into people. Um, moving on to the effector phase, when the T cell gets into the cancer microenvironment, it interacts with the cancer in a very similar way. Um, and what happens there is that the, um, the cancer cell can express a molecule called PDL1, programmed death ligand 1, which interacts with the receptor on the T cell. And when these interact, this is a negative signal, tells the T cell to sort of back off, that this is sort of a, a self you know, um, uh, cell, the T cell shouldn't attack it. And so PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors bind to these molecules and prevent this negative regulation at the level of the tumor. Um, and so you could imagine that that could allow the T cell to overcome some of the cancer cells' um, uh, immunoinhibitory um, signals. Um, so this is very critical to sort of keep this in mind at, uh, as, we, as we think about these um, different types of studies. Um, so for ipilimumab, which was the, the CTLA-4 inhibitor, you know, actually the first time ipilimumab was used in patients was in prostate cancer. And this goes way back, this is a much more recent citation, but going back to 20, uh, the, early, the early part of this um, century, in the early 2000s, patients were receiving ipilimumab in early phase studies. 
And there were some encouraging um, results. So this is, a, for example, a patient who had a PSA of greater than 100 who within two months his PSA had essentially become undetectable. Um, and uh, a second patient who had a very similar response, and it's hard to see here, but the bone lesions essentially resolved on bone scan for both of these patients, and there was responses in soft tissue where tumors really shrank. Um, and so this um, was exciting to see. Um, the challenge was that ipilimumab was tested in two phase three clinical trials in um, metastatic castration-resistant disease after chemotherapy, uh, as well as in uh, metastatic castration-resistant disease before chemotherapy, separate clinical trials. You can see in the post-chemotherapy study, what's interesting is that the, uh, the, uh, the red is the ipilimumab-treated patients, and the blue is the placebo-treated patients. And what you see is actually patients who got ipilimumab, initially these curves crossed. So initially patients who got treated with placebo actually did better than ipilimumab. And this may relate to some of the toxicity of ipilimumab in a very sick patient population. Um, over time, though, it looked like ipilimumab did a little bit better than, um, than the placebo. If you look at the hazard ratio here, I know it's small. It was 0.85 favoring ipilimumab. challenge was that the p-value was 0.053, which did not meet the pre-specified cut off for significance. So this is called a negative study. I think if you really analyze that, there probably are some patients here, you know, in this small group of patients who, you know, despite having already had chemotherapy, were alive almost three years later, um, who derive some benefit from ipilimumab. Um, and it gets back to the studies I showed you earlier with cipulosal um, T. There's probably a subset of patients who are benefiting from immune therapy and offering these treatments in clinical trials to everybody um, without selecting patients ahead of time may, may not be the right strategy because we may be obscuring or missing signal here. Um, in the pre-chemotherapy study, there was much less of a signal. In fact, the um, hazard ratio was, was very close to one here. Um, this may be also because the, uh, this study was done a little later. There may have been more options available to some of these patients, uh, including the hormone therapies, new chemotherapy, et cetera. Um, a little hard to know. But, but the, the take-home point is that even though there seems to be some activity, ipilimumab by itself is not approved to treat prostate cancer, even though it's creating a lot of waves across um, a number of different um, cancers. Um, if we go to the next slide, this is data for pembrolizumab, and this is very early data. And I, I just want to point out this is from just 2017, um, uh, so, so really recent data. And this was a study in which uh, the investigators added pembrolizumab to enzalutamide in men with castration-resistant disease. And in this small study by um, Julie Graf and the team at um, Oregon Health Sciences, uh, they saw three out of ten patients had responses. And again, you can see here this lymphadenopathy in the circle really, really went away with the use of a PD-1 inhibitor pembrolizumab. And so that generated a lot of interest, a lot of waves, and that led to the design of a phase um, Two study called Keynote 199, which was just presented at ASCO um, just just in June, so only a few months ago, and this was a much bigger look at um, pembrolizumab in patients with prostate cancer. Now these patients had already had chemotherapy, so it was a little different. They um, had to have had at least one targeted endocrine therapy like abiraterone or enzalutamide, one or two prior chemotherapies, and have measurable disease um, in in uh, one cohort, and then there was a second. Um, cohort that just had bone metastases without measurable disease. Um, they allowed in any patients with uh, PD-L1 status, and here they actually pre-specified the tumor had to be positive or negative for two different cohorts. Um, what you can see here on the right is kind of the meat of the study, because this is, remember, phase two study, so there was no control arm. Um, and what you can see is called a, a waterfall plot. You see that there's just a handful of patients over here on the right whose um, uh, disease, this is looking at objectively at the size of their tumors, actually shrank. Um, and I, I, the number of patients here is low. It's on the order of just, just a handful, probably 10% or less. Um, and this is true for the um, patients with measurable disease or for patients with bone-only um, bone disease. There wasn't a, a, a very clear signal. You can see down here some patients with bone-only disease seem to have a good response. The majority really didn't. Um, and so this was a little underwhelming, you know, uh, in the sense that most patients had stable disease and we saw very few clear responses. These waterfall plots from melanoma show, you know, 40 and 50 percent of patients responding to um, single-agent um, uh, drug. Um, this is a uh, sort of look back at, at different um, 
prognostic factors that may have, or I should say the, the number of patients who responded. And when they actually, when they actually look at the number of patients who having complete responses or partial responses, and I actually want to draw your attention not to this red box, but all the way over here, um, you can see the numbers are very small. If you put all the patients together, three or four percent of patients are, are having really good um, responses to these drugs. You know, another 20% or so are having stable disease, um, but that's really not a very good endpoint because some patients will have stable disease because they have slow-growing cancer, and a lot of patients progress on single-agent um, pembrolizumab. Um, when you look at these responders, you can um, sort of try and pick out why some patients are responding and why others aren't. Um, in in uh, one group of patients who are responding, they looked at DNA repair mutations, and again, these numbers are very small, but four out of six of them actually had mutations in, in the DNA repair um, uh, genes. And so it suggests maybe that these cells were more mutated, perhaps, and that, that sort of drives response because there's more targets for the immune system to um, latch onto. Um, in the earlier data I showed you, one out of three actually had microsatellite uh, unstable cancer. And these, we know these microsatellite unstable tumors um, have um, uh, significantly higher uh, mutational burden. And that's uh, clearly associated with better response. Again, the idea being that more mutation leads to more novel proteins, or also called neoantigens, that then lead to um, an easier uh, sort of recognition by the immune system of the uh, tumor. Um, so why don't these work? In, um, at least as monotherapy in CRPC? Well, you know, first of all, the jury is still a little out on, on the PD-1 inhibitors. And in fact, there are multiple trials that are underway, including phase three studies, that are looking at giving PD-1 inhibitors in across broader populations to see if we can really tease out whether there's a, a real signal there. Um, and as I'm going to talk about, there are a number of combination studies. So when I say they don't work, they're really I'm talking about as monotherapy, and this is for the majority of patients. I think one of the first ones I've already mentioned is that the tumor mutational burden in prostate cancer is actually relatively low compared to other cancers. Um, as I said, fewer mutations lead to fewer neoantigens, and that's less targets for the immune system. Um, this is a, a, from the TCGA, the Cancer Genome Atlas, um, looking at all uh, tumors that have been profiled up to date and ranking them by their um, frequency of mutations um, across, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of tumors that were profiled. And you can see that melanoma is by far the most mutated cancer. It's, you know, log, logs higher than most other cancers. Um, squint, lung cancer and bladder cancer really follow, follow up. And these are all exposure-related cancers, like, like from sunlight and UV rays, generally from tobacco for, for lung cancer and bladder cancer. Um, and if you, if you notice, these were the first three diseases where these drugs were approved. So there really is a connection between mutational burden and, um, and checkpoint in inhibition. It's not the only driver, but it's certainly one of them. Prostate cancer here in the box falls squarely in the middle of tumors, and this really is not a very mutated tumor. And that may explain part of why um, patients don't respond so well or don't seem to respond so well. Um, the other is this idea of cold and hot tumors. And this is uh, a sort of a very um, uh, idea gaining a lot of traction um, in oncology. And the idea is that not only do you need to have a mutated tumor, but you may need to have a tumor that's infiltrated by T cells. And if you look at um, broadly across oncology, tumors that are already infiltrated by T cells uh, tend to respond better than tumors that are um, uh, cold, meaning there's really no T cells in there. And the idea is there's just one step, you know, for the T cells to sort of turn on and kill the cancer. Whereas if there's no T cells in there already, then, you know, we have to, going back to that immunity cycle, we have to get T cells to drive into the cancer and then turn them on and then get them to kill the cancer. Um, and this is illustrated here, the difference between a cold, T cell, a cold tumor and a hot tumor. Um, cold tumors here, the cells are stained in, in, in uh, brown or black. You see there's almost no T cells in this microenvironment. And this is typical for a lot of prostate cancer. Um, there are sort of different flavors of hot T cells. There's some uh, hot, hot tumors. Some have T cells that haven't fully infiltrated the tumors. They're sort of in the peri-tumor tissues. And then you can see here there's just many more T cells all over the, um, the, the tumors here in this um, uh, inflamed environment. And so it may be that we need to add something that will inflame the microenvironment, that will draw T cells in nonspecifically, and then perhaps give a checkpoint inhibitor. Um, and so this is forming a lot of the basis of, of strategies in prostate cancer. And there really are a lot of strategies that, uh, that, are, that are in development. 
Um, this is sort of mechanistically what I've told you already. We're, we're really trying to look at the difference between um, a suppressed microenvironment where you may have um, factors in the microenvironment that really don't allow for good infiltration like regulatory T cells, which are essentially quiescent, um, myeloid-derived suppressor cells, macrophages, immature dendritic cells, all of these sort of quiet the immune system or, or, or reflective of a quiet immune system. And then uh, on the flip side, you know, uh, CD8 infiltration, uh, production of interferons, production of interleukins, um, these are so associated with inflammation. So we're really trying to drive these prostate tumors that look like this to become prostate tumors that look like this. Um, so how are we doing that? In just the last few minutes, there are a number of novel directions. And truthfully, there's so many, I can't, I can't go through all of them in one um, talk. But just to give you a flavor of really what's, what's happening, um, as I mentioned, there are a number of studies that are looking at combinations. So this is all data just presented from ASCO in, um, you know, a number of four, four or five months ago. There's one study of uh, Prospect plus nivolumab, and you can see in this small study done at the NCI, um, there were at least two patients who had very dramatic responses to this. Now, would they have had a response to the nivolumab alone? Maybe. Would they have a response to the Prospect? Maybe. Um, so we really need randomized studies to untangle what's, what's causing this but there's at least some, some data. Um, there was uh, data presented about a listeria vaccine. So I showed you Prostac is a genetically modified virus. There are multiple companies that have used listeria bacteria, which are, which are very um, immunostimulatory and modified those. They've met with sort of mixed success, um, um, including some toxicity, but there, there are responders in these, um, in these early studies. Um, the last one that I want to uh, show, at least on this slide, is a DNA-based vaccine. So this is essentially um, giving a vaccine that's literally DNA bases um, coding for prostate antigens together with pembrolizumab. And what you can see is that um, after treatment, you can see some um, infiltration of the tumors by T cells. And this is really what we're trying to do. Again, early and mechanistic, but um, I think it's interesting um, um, data for the future. Um, what about combining checkpoint inhibitors? Ipilimumab, nivolumab, they're already approved to treat um, melanoma and to treat kidney cancer. This is an early study looking at the combination to treat um, prostate cancer. This happens to be an ARB7 high, so it's a small study. Um, but there are a number of other um, groups that are looking at this, and you do see some responses. So whether this will be an option in the future remains to be seen, but um, clearly there's, there's activity across oncology at least across a number of cancers, and, and maybe that'll be true for prostate cancer. Um, PARP inhibitors are also in late-stage testing in prostate cancer, and there's at least one study looking at olaparib plus dervalumab, so a PD-1 inhibitor and a PARP inhibitor, that shows responses, again, which of these are due to the PARP inhibitor, which of these are due to the PD-1, and is there really synergy here? You know, we don't know, but there are um, a number of studies that are going to be addressing this. Um, here at UCSF, we have a, uh, a number of interesting studies. So we have a study that's, that's uh, just about to open looking at um, uh, lutetium PSMA and giving this as a sort of a, a dose to light the fire in the, in the immune, in the uh, tumor microenvironment, followed by giving patients with, uh, giving patients pembrolizumab when we're looking at different dose schedules here. But the idea is to combine immune therapy with something that is um, very tumorcidal or tumor toxic to really inflame the microenvironment and get those um, dendritic cells activated and drive the T cells in the, in the microenvironment. Um, we have a similar study for men. That study is for castration-resistant disease. We have a similar study for men with newly diagnosed oligometastatic disease, so not a lot of metastases. I think it's three is the number of metastases they can have. And they get a, a run-in of uh, hormone therapy like you would do as a standard treatment. And then they get treated with um, pembrolizumab for about a year and they get uh, uh, radiation to the prostate, and they get an injection of something called a TLR9 agonist. This is essentially is a, it's called a chemokine. It's a, it sort of uh, draws immune cells in. It's like bait for the immune system. Draws immune cells into the, wherever, wherever this, this drug is given. And so we're injecting this into the prostate and then giving radiation and really trying to, um, really trying to uh, uh, light the fire. Um, so with that, um, I'll show you there's a number of other um, uh, drugs that are available that are in testing. Um, you know, should we give immune therapy earlier, perhaps? You know, we may be able to attack the cancer before it, it uh, spreads too far, spare some toxicity of chemotherapy. Um, there are a lot of studies looking at this across on, uh, prostate cancer and neoadjuvant studies to understand some of the mechanisms. 
Um, here's an example of prospect and rising PSA, neoadjuvant cipulosal um, T, again, very early studies, so we'll, we'll see um, what the activity is. So just in conclusion, um, cipulosal T has an established role in this early CRPC setting. PD-1, CTLA-4 benefit a small percent of patients. I think we need better biomarkers. There are a number of them listed here. How to turn this cold tumor hot is important. And then looking at sequencing and combinations is really the next, the next big step. And so with that, I'll turn it back over to Costas. Awesome, Terry. Thank you very much. That was certainly a, a very comprehensive review of all of that. Uh, that is the end of our last webinar on immuno-oncology and genitourinary cancers. I'd like to thank our uh, two uh, experts today. I thought that that was just an excellent conversation. Uh, you may access a variety of free resources on the advancements in GU IO treatments by visiting auanet.org backslash GU. Resources include, um, and this is a list of what we've done up till now, immuno-oncology, a new class of drugs, webcast and podcast. Immuno-oncology, a focus on bladder cancer, webcast and podcast. And breaking down the barriers podcast, uh, focusing on biomarkers. There are additional free resources coming soon, which include our immuno-oncology, a focus on kidney cancer, uh, which is a webcast and podcast, breaking down the barriers, incorporating new IO therapies, managing patient side effects, uh, which is a podcast, and finally, breaking down the barriers, incorporating new IO therapies, and how to properly administer IO therapies in an infusion suite, which is also a podcast that we did uh, back in September. With that being said, uh, I think that we have now come to the end of our final webinar in our uh, series on immunotherapy and genitourinary on genital oncology. I'd like to thank our two experts uh, for a very stimulating uh, hour plus, and um, I, I will take any last comments. Uh, otherwise, I think we can go ahead and sign off. Thanks, guys. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.